to thank you, Van, and his friend. Let's give them a little recognition. This is Bill Falwell. Good morning. <clears throat> is this on? Are you hearing me all right? Good. <clears throat> if you are a uh, first-time guest today, uh, I am not a minister. <laughs> I, uh, our minister is a, a great minister, probably one of the best in this country. There's some time off, so he's on vacation. He is away somewhere. I forgot. I don't know where he is, but I'm, I'm hoping he's enjoying himself. But, of course, while he's away, the worship associates will play. And he's given us permission to do this, actually. Uh, there's going to be another worship associate next week talking, Kathy Costa. She's going to be very good talking about the interdependent web of all existence and from a Native American kind of a position. So uh, be here for that. Uh, <clears throat> uh, what uh, we're going to be talking about, actually, this summer is our principles. Uh, we have seven principles here. Uh, yes, Unitarian Universalists actually have principles. We do not have a Bible. We do not have the Koran. We don't have the Upanishads. But we do have principles. And uh, uh, one of them I'm going to be talking about today is, is justice. And uh, since I don't know everything, which uh, I usually pretend I know everything, but uh, I'm going to give you guys a chance to give your experiences and wisdom afterwards. So this will be only be about 15 minutes. I have a prop today. Uh, you see the scales of justice here. I borrowed from Mark, Mark Brandt. I uh, bring them in because uh, <laughs> I did some research, actually, for this talk, uh, besides my own experiences. And I'm not going to be talking too much about the research because there's a lot of it. This is a big subject, uh, as you may know. And uh, so I wanted to point out that, uh, I don't know if you remember, but uh, there, there was a goddess of justice way back in the Roman times and Greek times and so forth, and they had statues uh, of the goddess of justice holding up the scales and had a sword in one hand and she was blindfolded. Well, that, that statue is in front of a lot of places around the world, actually. Those scales, to me, when I looked at the pictures on the Internet, uh, they were askew a little bit. They were not in balance, I swear. And I have heard ever, you know, for quite some time that there was a purpose for the scales being displayed uh, out of balance. And that is because, do you know? Justice is out of balance, for sure. Uh, justice is never perfect. And... Uh, well, anyway, uh, uh, 
I was, I'm going to, I think I'll just take a, a moment now because there's so much going on in the world. I was going to really say that, uh, yeah, I'll say this. My, uh, my experiences and all my life I've felt that I don't understand why there is so much injustice in the world. I just have never understood that. And so I got involved myself, you know, earlier in my life in, in the justice system. But what I've learned, I guess in my life, and I'm sure you've learned in yours, uh, there's never going to be perfect justice. There's never going to be perfect peace, it doesn't sound like, in the world. Uh, it's very strange. We have not evolved yet. Uh, this human race uh, that is in control of a lot of the world uh, has not evolved to the point where we can be at peace and not conflicting with other, other people and other nations, etc. We are at war yet today ourselves, and there are people across in the world that are, that are at war within themselves, the civil war. Um, anyway, uh, I'm going to just take a moment now, just because it's obviously in our minds, uh, Norway. Uh, my mother is from Norway, and uh, uh, I visited Oslo, and, and I know the people. I'm, I'm from those people, and, uh, and you know I get emotional <laughs> just about any, over anything, so I'm getting emotional about that, but I, w I think we should just take uh, just a moment of silence and remember that tragedy, that tragedy of so many young people being killed uh, for whatever reason. Let us just take a moment of silence. Okay. Let me get into my written talk today, and then I'm going to give you guys a chance. <clears throat> you may remember the Pledge of Allegiance. Maybe a while since you were in high school, uh, but it ends with one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Well. As a nation, I do believe we have made great efforts from the very beginning to provide justice for all. It was written into our Declaration of Independence and later into our Constitution. Abraham Lincoln had argued that our Constitution should be interpreted through the statements in the Declaration, including the second sentence, which you remember, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Later in the preamble to the Constitution, it states, we the people of the United States of America, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure the domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, 
to ordain and establish the Constitution, etc. And so, it is perplexing, very perplexing to me that although there have been good intentions from the beginning, and although there have been updates in the law and the enforcement of laws, there is still injustice in this country. If you don't believe me, just look at the topics over the past year for discussion in our Open Issues Discussion Group, which meets every Sunday in a social hall. From the immigration situation, to drug laws, to education issues, to the treatment of our animal sources of food, etc., etc., that program has been discussing everything under the sun, including issues in other countries, which in other countries relating to justice or injustice. And of course, our social justice committee has been very active in this church, addressing many issues over the years, and has often taken bold social action. So today, our subject for reflection is our second principle, affirming and promoting justice, equity, and compassion in human relations. It has certainly been confirmed by this congregation lately in our rewording of the vision and mission statements. In our vision statement, we describe an inclusive religious community as a beacon for reason, meaning, and bold social action. And in our mission statement, one of our missions is to act with act for justice and equity. All right. I hope the inclusion of these commitments by the UUA and by this congregation are not surprising to anyone or are unique in the world of religions. It seems to me that most religions have demonstrated throughout history a compassion which leads to helping others. The Good Samaritan story in Christianity has its counterparts in other religions. In this country, the Catholics, many Protestant sects, Muslims, Buddhists, and others certainly have been charitable and even have organized their own social pro programs to help people in need. The Salvation Army and the Ch Catholic Charities come to mind, for example. And of course, UUs have been in the forefront of progressive social action for, for justice, equity, for much of our history. What is it that makes us and so many people across the world act in a selfless, compassionate way to help other individuals or groups? According to Kenneth Collier, a UU minister, to have social, political, and legal justice we must have in individuals who are just, individuals who have recognized their own worth and dignity. And see it in others. Another UU minister, Emily Gage, was impressed upon visiting a prison and observing the prison chaplain listening and talking with an inmate 
as a person. He was acknowledging the inherent worth and dignity of that inmate, which of course is the first principle of our UU faith. And so, as Kenneth Collier pointed out, having a sense of worth and dignity ourselves, we are able to recognize situations where the worth and dignity of other individuals and groups is violated. So you can see that justice is often based on our first principle. And now, I would like to give a couple of examples from my own life where the practice of respecting one's worth and dignity came into play. As you may know, part of my life was spent as a probation officer working with the juvenile and, and criminal justice system. In that job, any chance of succeeding in helping a person in trouble with the law required the showing of respect for his, their worth and dignity. Just their having been arrested and going before the court was often enough embarrassment and punishment to bring them back to the, their basic goodness and humanity. I saw that especially with juveniles. Anyway, if the person did not feel I respected him or her, that person would not relate to me in any meaningful way. When I recognized them as a fellow human being and even showed I cared about them, there was usually a positive response and a positive outcome. My success rate, along with most others in Morris County, New Jersey, was 80%. That is, for those 80%, there were no further arrests in the three years following their discharge from probation. So you can see that it was a very rewarding job. And we were uh, professional enough that the, the boss and the county uh, did research on us <laughs> regularly, ongoing research. The other example in my life I would like to tell you about where I saw the worth and dignity in a person come into play was a result of systemic injustice. And it was a learning experience for me. It was a time of the Jim Crow laws in the South. It was 1956. After training, at Lack Lackland Air Force Base in Texas, a fellow airman and I traveled by train to our next assignment. We stopped in Dallas to change trains and go our separate ways. However, we decided to get some lunch, lunch first. Excuse me a minute while I get emotional. <laughs> That's one thing about talking in front of groups. Uh, I do get emotional sometimes. Yeah, I'm sorry. <clears throat> well, I, I shouldn't apologize. They said I shouldn't apologize. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm glad I'm with friends here. Uh, 
Well, let's see, where were they? Okay, we decided to get some lunch first and went to this restaurant. Well, the waitress greeted us and said to me, you're welcome, but your friend, airman, will not be welcome. As you may have guessed, he was African-American. Well, now for me the proper thing to do was not to go into that restaurant, right? Well, uh, I was 19 years of age from the farm and not too swift in thinking, not very fast on my feet. <laughs> and uh, we had a train to catch. And besides that, I think I was probably hungry. Anyway, uh, I stayed and ate lunch. And he, we decided he'd go to find another restaurant. I don't know whatever happened to him. I didn't know him that well. But anyway, uh, I've always felt guilty, of course, about my failure to feel enough outrage at the violation of that man's worth and dignity. We were both in uniform and had pledged to uphold the laws of our country, a country which would not let him eat in a restaurant. Later in life, I tried to make up for that failure by doing as much as I could during the days of the civil rights marches and demonstrations. And there have been plenty of opportunities in my 30 years or so as a UU to participate somehow in actions to promote justice and equity in human relations. Thank you. Okay, uh, we have provided uh, uh, microphones for you all, one on each side, hopefully. And uh, I do encourage uh, mainly people who have had experiences in their lives uh, of injustice toward them, uh, injustice that you've experienced uh, in your lifetimes. You're also asked, you're welcome to ask me questions, but I'd uh, love to hear some of your experiences. I gave you some of mine. Uh, you've probably had more, more than I have. So whoever would like to talk. Push the green, uh, push the light till it's green. Test, test, test. Well, that's okay. Uh, it's on. All right. Uh, I had a, a, a similar experience to Carl's. I was in the Navy on an aircraft carrier station just outside of Jacksonville, 1957. And one of my best friends on the ship was a ship surgeon from New York City who was black. And we, could not, we didn't try to go out to dinner together because we knew we couldn't do that. 
and it was infuriating. I said, we, we, try, we didn't even try to go out to dinner together because we knew what the situation was in Jacksonville. This man was a surgeon, uh, you know, an MD and all that, in uniform, couldn't eat in a restaurant, the same restaurant I ate at. Okay. Anybody else? Um, I am not going to be talking about my personal experience, but I just came from um, a trip um, where we, I'm taking a course at USF um, where we retrace the Freedom Rides from 1961, where um, black college students challenged the Jim Crow uh, interstate transportation laws. And um, we rode the bus through the Deep South, starting in Nashville and ending up in uh, Montgomery. Yeah. <clears throat> and it was a very moving trip because we had some of the original Freedom Riders with us. 400 people died in this fight in the Deep South. Two of them were Unitarians. One was um, a Reverend Reed, and another was a, was a young mother, um, Lazaro, I think is her last name. Liozo? Liuzo. Um, I was very touched to know that Unitarians had participated and two had died for this cause. It was a very moving trip, and the enormity of this problem was certainly brought home to me. I was too young to remember exactly, you know, participating in it or any of those sorts of things, but um, the College students who participated, um, they were from two universities. One was from Tennessee State, and one was a private university, Fisk. Um, they, they were just some of the many, many who participated. But the, those from the Tennessee State were expelled, and they never got their degrees. They later got degrees, honorary degrees. The private university students um, did get their degrees, and um, John Siegenthaler, the representative of the, the Department of Justice at the time for Robert Kennedy, was very involved in this and was um, seriously injured in a, in a um, riot at, at the bus station. Thank you. Thank you. It's on. Hello. I've got to be careful with this thing. My name is Bill D. Uh, most folks know that I went to uh, Phoenix protest uh, SB 1070 along with uh, hundreds of other UUs from across the United States. What I'd li like to share is uh, something that, quite frankly, Colin reminded me of. I was on my way there. I did not know what was going to happen. As a result, I went to Montgomery and I retraced the footsteps of that march. I meditated at the foot of the bridge, bloody Sunday. I meditated in Birmingham across from the church where the three little girls were killed by angry white people. I meditated in that park, and if you ever have a chance to go and duplicate that, it's a very moving experience. I, um, because I truly believe that the issues in the Sedora Desert is our Selma of the day. 
We are UUs, and our seven principles dictate that we stand on the side of justice and love. Thank you, Bill. Yes. Hi. Um, my name is Jeff Anderson. I was born in Huntsville, Alabama on January the 13th of 1963. And that was on a Sunday, that next Monday, the, the following day, George Wallace became the governor of Alabama for the first time. And it was on that day that he gave a very famous speech in which he said that we would have segregation today, tomorrow, and forever. And I'm just so thankful that by the time I was aware of the world around me. I've never seen segregation in Alabama. So I just wanted to share something a little more positive that steps were made before, I mean, like I said, I was born that day, and by the time I became aware of the world around me, there wasn't segregation there. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. Microphone over there. Do, do people remember the uh, the bus uh, uh, the buses that went down into Alabama and Georgia and so forth? Uh, it was on television not too long ago, uh, reviewing what people had to go through to to get their rights uh, in this country in the 60s. It was a terrible time. 1960, we were still uh, segregated in a lot of ways. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, it was 1963, and Maureen Kane, and I was with a three-year-old daughter, and I was on a Greyhound bus going to Miami to stay with a girlfriend, fleeing from an abusive husband. And in Georgia, I got off the bus with my daughter, and there were two, two fountains. And I went to the fountain that had the shortest line. And of course, it was for African-Americans. But to me, everyone was people. You know, I just went, she wanted a drink of water, and I was bent over the fountain holding her, and someone took my head and picked me up and pushed us down on the ground. And it was the driver of the Greyhound bus, who was white, and he said, you stupid white bitch. If you want to stay alive, you won't drink from the end fountains again. And we didn't get off the bus for the rest of the time from Georgia all the way to Miami. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. This is a positive story. In the 60s, my husband and I were traveling with a road show. Uh, we were uh, performing a play, and we traveled through the South. The play was called The Tunnel of Love. And we had a costume woman who was black and had been traveling for months with the show. We hit the South, and they would not allow her into the hotel. The entire cast refused to take rooms. The star of the show, who was a nationally known person, said he was going to call the newspapers and cancel the show, which was playing for a week. 
The hotel changed their mind. The dressing room costume woman stayed. And the show made money. Thank you, Nancy. Um, I know we've been talking about what happened in the 60s, but you're suggesting today with um, all kinds of other people also. Um, I would just like to say something that's very ironic. I had made a peace sign, and we had been doing some peace cornering a couple of years ago. Um, and I made this peace sign myself. It was homemade, and it said, Positive energy affirmatively changes everything. That's what spells peace. And um, I had this peace sign with me, and I went to an Obama rally, and some, I think it was a Republican, I'm not sure. She was, she was very, she said, you can't have this peace sign at the, at the Obama rally. I said, it's a peace sign. You think I'm going to hit somebody with it? Um, and they took it away from me, and they threw it out, and I never got it back. So, um, also, um, I would like to say that this church is a wonderful place, and it's, um, it's not perfect, though. We, we have a group for um, LGBT, LGBT community here. It's supposed to administer to those people. And for some reason, I was rejected from being a part of that group. I don't know why. Because they didn't say no blind people could join. Um, but um, so I, I think it was an injustice to me. It was kind of, it's supposed to be a group for every, you know, whoever wants to join there. And they said um, that I wasn't allowed there. So I was like, why was that? And so um, I think our church is wonderful, but we still have a long way to go. Thank you, Charis. Over here. Oh, yes. Just to follow up on, uh, we have a long way to go. Uh, my name is George Temple, and, and my wife, Carol, and I are from South Carolina. And you may know of South Carolina, having watched perhaps a, a, light, a late night show or two, uh, we had the governor who was on the Appalachian Trail, and, uh, and we now have a governor. We have a long way to go. We now have a governor who is following through on a national trend, and that national trend is to disenfranchise a uh, large number of African Americans. We just passed what was called a photo ID bill, and what we are requiring now of 170,000 people in our state who were able to, to vote in the past, 170,000 people now who don't have an ID will be required to get one. And you can imagine who those people are. They're in rural communities, they're poor, many of them may not, and many of them are black, and many of them may not have the, uh, the ID that's required in order to get a photo ID when they go to the DMV. So, I'm the uh, chair of the County Democratic Party, and we're working hard to uh, get them to the polls and to uh, get them the IDs that they need to vote. Great. Thank We've got you. a long way to go. Yes. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Millie Jones. 
I'm a native of Tampa, and I spent all my years through high school and part of college there. In Tampa, we, I, I grew up with signs that said, colored people at the water fountains, at waiting rooms, if there were any waiting rooms, and at restrooms. Frequently there was none for them, and the restroom may say white only. My, and the N-word was a part of life. That was the life I knew. I, I mean, I went to the Methodist church. Nobody ever said that was wrong. So I went to college at Florida Presbyterian College, which is now Eckerd College. The college was way too liberal for the Presbyterian church, and of course they wanted to disenfranchise it. Eventually they were able to. But I was introduced to thoughts that we were all the same, that we shouldn't be using those words. Everything should be available to everyone. I was shocked. I had no idea that that was the way life should be. It was, quite frankly, very hard for me to accept. And I remember having some long discussions about it. I eventually came around. And then my true awakening was when I was first married, my husband and I were remodeling a duplex. And he would pick up a day laborer. He was always black. And my parents came over while he was there working. And they used the N-word several times. And I said, I'm sorry, but I don't want that word used in my home. And they were like, what's wrong? They continued to use it, you know. And of course, he was in earshot. Um, it was some rudeness that, that occurred in my home. Thank you, Millie. Anyone else? Oh, sorry. Good morning. My name is uh, Jason Erickson. And um, something that... Um, Can't hear. I'm sorry. My name is Jason Erickson. Good morning. Um, something that popped up into my head um, as we started this discussion that uh, I'm not sure how many people may or may not remember this. Um, back in 1992, when the, I believe the Summer Olympics were held here in Atlanta, uh, there was a gentleman by the name of Carl Lewis who had set uh, multiple world records and had won... Uh, uh, multiple gold medals um, in the uh, track and field arena. And during that time, I remember uh, there was a, a lot of um, media coverage, um, you know, explaining, you know, that he had, you know, broken these multiple records and, and how wonderful he had done. And um, something that really bothered me when I was uh, 13 years old at the time was I remember sitting with my father and he had, uh, stated at the time that because this man had openly said that he was homosexual, that he didn't deserve those gold medals, and that he did not deserve to be a part of that community. And that because of not even, and he was also an African-American gentleman as well, not even because of the color of his skin, but because of his homosexuality, his sexual preference, he did not deserve to be part of that community, nor did he deserve accolades that he had so worked so hard to win and um, I just remember that really sticking out in my mind because my father wasn't the only one who had thought this there was a lot of media coverage involving this and everything else and uh, you know I'm sorry for getting a little emotional but I just remember at uh, such a young age it really really affected me that um, you know we were at such a uh, you know we're so enlightened 
and uh, we're in such a, you know, a good position, and, and uh, you know, we have the UU Church and all these things, um, you know, but it, it takes, um, at least in my opinion as a UU, it takes one day at a time uh, through, you know, constant wisdom, justice, and love to, to overcome these things, and uh, I'm uh, very much glad to be a part of this community, and that's all I have to share this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, my name is Wasan Surti, and I was in Washington, D.C. in the 60s. Then I participated in the Civil Rights March from Selma, Alabama to Washington, D.C. near the end. So I, I remember it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Carl? Yes. That you feel within your heart and mind the oh. amazing warmth and satisfaction of this amazing flow of comments. Religion at its highest, at its best, is how we treat each other. Please understand the deep feelings within my heart and appreciation for you, what you've done, and what you've said today. Thank you so much. Thank you, O'Neill. <laughs> I appreciate it. I'll give you that $5 bill later. <laughs> yes. My last one? Oh, wow. <laughs> I, uh, I can't stop thinking about Norway. And, uh, and I don't know even how to say anything about it, but I remember a long time ago when I was in junior high, we were faced, when we, we came home from school on the school bus, and we had to walk a few blocks to our houses, and there was a guy who waited for us. He was a bully, and he would pick us out one by one and knock us around. And then he'd, he'd, then he'd go away, and then we'd go home. But we'd been hit and, 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 and uh, insulted. And one day we decided, let's, let's get Gilbert. Let's not let him do it anymore. So we all went together, and some of, it, some of the some girls with us, and we ganged up on him, and we just beat the hell out of him. And... <laughs> And he never bothered us again. Well, now, I don't want to compare this with Norway, but that man was a supreme bully, in my mind. He was a crazy bully. And I don't know if there was any way they could have done anything. But if somebody was there who would have got the kids, even... 50 of them, or 20 of them, or whatever, got them together and said, let's go get him. Half of them might have got killed in the process, but still, how many? 90 got killed anyway? Of course, maybe they, they didn't know they were all going to get killed, but maybe they could have done it. I don't know. I can just think about it. Thank you. Uh, one more. I'm going to let Bill uh, Newton have a chance, and then we'll get into some music. Um, is it someone uh, Jeff? Oh, go ahead. I'm go good. Yeah. Um, 
my father was the original Archie Bunker too, and I kind of separated myself from his thought process. Uh, and, and I lived in New Jersey, so and it was all over the place. But I want to give everybody at least my opinion of what you guys do and how important it is. When you reach out to do justice, when you do things for others, you may never realize how incredibly important that could be. Because you don't know from what happens from the next step that you did that to the next step to the next step. I just learned 40 years later that the demonstrations that I went to in Washington D.C. about the war was significant enough that Nixon uh, reacted to all the demonstrations that were happening in the world at that time. And I was part of that, where he didn't do some of the violence that he wanted to do to Vietnam. I'm just letting people know that when they do little acts of kindness and, and acts of good, it really, really has an, uh, an immense um, um, situation with people. Thank you, Bill. And he's right. And a lot of people here have been active over the years. And uh, uh, I don't think we'll ever solve all the problems. There will be injustice probably forever. Uh, that's, my, that's my read on it. I'm not sure now, maybe a thousand years from now. 3,011, talk to me. <laughs> I'll be up there or down there. I'm not sure which. <laughs> but anyway, thank you for listening today. And uh, that's